verse 14. So Mark goes, going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Oh, I didn't tell you. So we sailed across from the western shores of Cyprus, sailing north right up to that area of Asia Minor. And making it by foot, they they land there, right there on the coast of Asia Minor. They come to uh, Perga in Pamphylia. And then going on from Perga, they go on up north to a main capital of that whole region, Pisidian Antioch. There were Antiochs all over the place, by the way. There's Syrian Antioch, where the disciples were first called Christianos. That's a major hub of Christianity for 200 years on. But now we're at Pisidian Antioch, so we're in a different place. And on Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials went to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, I wouldn't do that. If we had a visiting person here, sitting, say, in the third row, listening attentively, Worship, worshiping, you know, joyfully, and then but I notice, hey, that guy's new. I wouldn't say, hey, dude, you got something to share with the fellowship? Come on up. Well, they obviously recognized something in Paul and Barnabas. These two men obviously knew their, their, their Jewishness, saying the right things at the right time, engaged in the synagogue service, so they did what was customary. If you had visiting Jews, you would offer them the Kishé Moshe. The seat of Moses. You have something to share? Come sit in the seat of Moses. And they would come sit down and they would teach. And so, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Amen. Amen. You can almost hear it in the synagogue. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Yes, he did. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. What a marvelous way for Paul to start. And the Jewish people are in. Yeah, the fathers. Yeah, took care of us. Yeah, led them by uplifted arm. Do you remember, by the way, how he did that? How he led them by uplifted arm? Exodus 17 tells the story about Israel fighting against the Amalekites. And Moses goes up on a hill and Joshua, he's leading the people as as they battle these Amalekites. There at Rephidim, he goes up on the hill and Moses holds up his hands and every time his hands were up, oh, Israel was victorious. And when his hands, his arms got tired and began to come down, oh, Israel began to lose. I wish we had that power with the Seahawks. (laughs) How marvelous that would be. Right, Russell? Touchdown, yeah. Hey, hand me a chip. Oh, no, 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 no. Give the ball to Marshawn. Run him in. I mean, that'd be great. So Moses did that. He had his arms up and they won. And then his arms would get tired. And so Aaron and her stood beside him to hold up his arms. It was was for, you know, his and a her kind of a thing. They could hold up the arms. Right? Thank you. I heard the hiss. Don't think I missed that. Wouldn't you think in that battle that at least one of the Amalekites would look up on the hill and notice, when that guy's arms are up, we don't do too well. And when that guy's arms come down, we start to lose. Man, send an assassin to kill the guy. Take out Moses, and you've got the whole thing. And by the way, that is exactly what Satan does in the church. You see, 
as long as our hands are lifted up to the Lord, we are victorious. But when our hands go down, when the people of God stop worshiping, the enemy wins. There is great value to our worship gang. Great value. I will bless you as long as I live, Psalm 63, verse 4. I will lift up my hands in your name. And so, Paul starts out this this marvelous sermon. Verse 18, continuing. He goes on, he says, For a period of about 40 years... I love the precision. He says about 40 years because Saul knew it was actually 38 years after they left Mount Sinai. About two years from Egypt on down to Mount Sinai and then being at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb and then 38 years. So it was a total of 40 years, but depending on how you look at it, it was about 40. He says he put up with them in the wilderness. (laughs) And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, which Abraham is described in in Genesis 15. And actually there are ten nations there, but three of the nations are part of the larger nation, so literally it was seven. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. And all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Oh yes, David! Amen! Amen! You can hear the rumblings in the synagogue. Man, this guy knows his Bible. This is a good memory lesson. Wow, great history. Preach it, Paul. Preach it. He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he said that he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Messiah, Yeshua. <laughs> he just totally turns the tables on them. They are so with him. And it's happened here before. <laughs> Where I've had people doing the amen, the amen, the amen, and then I and then I lay out a sin that is particular. And it's like, <sighs> sure, I can agree with that one, Pastor. Amen, Saul. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed him before his coming, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. See, this was common knowledge. Even to the people over here in the regions of Pamphylia, Pisidian Antioch, they knew, they heard. People were aware of this whole John the Baptist thing taking place in Israel. The Jews knew anyway. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now understand, many of the Jewish people had great respect for Yohanan. Believed that John was a prophet of the Lord. They just weren't sure about what happened after. And so as, as Paul's sharing all of this, he's given them the history, he's reminding them now of what had just taken place. And he says in verse 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been given. Or has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. They recognize neither Him 
nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Shabbat, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Now see, he is working them beautifully because the Jewish people, they may be struggling with this issue of Yeshua as Messiah. Was he really Messiah? Was he not Messiah? But when Paul mentions Pilate with the execution, they go, oh yeah, Pilate. <laughs> Pontius Pilate. Roman. He's, he's drawing on their, their sense of compassion. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, verse 29, they took him down from the cross. And they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Now stop right there. Paul, in this sermon, has drawn them along and now he makes an absolutely astounding claim. You want to check my story? Ask the witnesses. You want to know if what I'm saying is true? We're not, this is not Paul preaching today, 2,000 years later. This is Paul preaching in that generation. And he makes the claim. All these witnesses saw him. Saw him alive after they saw him crucified. After they saw him laid in the tomb. They saw him alive. You want to check my story? Book passage across to Israel and just start asking around. In fact, you can ask any one of 500 witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15.6 where Paul says he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom will remain uh, until now. Most were still alive. Do you realize how ridiculous a claim like that would be if it weren't true? All you got to do is ask around. Let me ask you, if someone's taken to trial, how many witnesses do we require for someone to be convicted of a crime? First person stands up, I saw him do it. I saw it with my own eyes, I was there, I saw him pull the gun and shoot. Second witnesses, witness stands up. Third, fourth. We pack 500 witnesses into a courthouse, what do you think the judge would say when all the evidence was heard? Okay, Guilty. 500 witnesses alive in the time of Paul as Paul is saying witnesses saw him alive and all you got to do is double check and you know the one thing the enemies of Christianity in the first century never asked one thing that was never said in all the recorded annals of anti-Christian sentiment across the years no one ever asked the question well where are the witnesses Because you see, they were all over the place. People had seen him alive. And Paul draws him to this point. Verse 32, he says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Yeshua. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, okay, hold that. Did you catch that? We've been over this a couple times, but I do not want anyone to miss this. Because cults love to quote Psalm 2, verse 7. Today you are my son, today I have begotten you. Cults, Christian cults, love to claim that it makes Jesus a created being. 
He's the only begotten Son of God. Therefore, He is birthed. And at the birth of Jesus, He was created by God. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. And Paul completely blows it out of the water right here. The cult would say the begottenness of Jesus, the Christmas story, it proves that He was created in Bethlehem and not God incarnate. What does Paul, by the Holy Spirit, right here, connect the begottenness of Jesus to? Look at the verses. Resurrection. Jesus became the only begotten Son in the resurrection, not in the birth. He came as God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But in His resurrection, verse 33, He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. What day? Resurrection Sunday. That was the day it happened. Jesus, what? listen to this, Jesus wasn't begotten as Son in the virgin womb, He was begotten as Son in the virgin tomb. Thank you, J. Vernon McGee. I love that. The unused tomb. That's where Jesus was raised to life and became, in that moment, the only begotten Son of God. What does that mean? It means the sonship of Jesus was confirmed in the resurrection. That in the resurrection, He received all the rights, all the privileges, the inheritance, and the authority of the firstborn Son. So when Jesus said... God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is a prophetic word of the begottenness that will happen in the resurrection of Christ. Always God. Always in existence. Emmanuel, God with us, puts on flesh and then dies in amazing obedience to the Father. Resurrected now is in first position. Son of God. Understand? And in two little verses, Paul explains that marvelously. Verse 32, going on. I'm sorry, verse 34. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He also says in another psalm, Paul continues, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So obviously, Psalm 16.11, that's what Paul's quoting there, you won't let your Holy One undergo decay, obviously did not apply to David because he rotted in the grave. He says... Therefore, verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed. And by the way, right at this point, the synagogue leader sitting over in the corner going, why did I give this guy the chair? (laughs) He says, take heed. So that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days. A work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you. Bam! (laughs) What a great conclusion. Paul lays it all out. He quotes Habakkuk. 
from 600 years prior, warning that scoffers and mockers who refused to believe God would do anything in their day would perish. Sound familiar? Scoffers who refused to believe that God could possibly do something in their day. Paul was saying 2,000 years ago, something's happened. Something big. Messiah has come in our day. And in our day, 2015, we proclaim that Messiah is coming and coming quickly. And for all the scoffers and the mockers out there, I get it. I understand. 18 years to the next blood moon tetrad. Oh well, I guess that was just not a... Listen. (laughs) It is. It's 18 years, at least looking at the stars and the patterns. 18 years till we have another blood moon tetrad. So, So is it time to settle back, pipe down, and shut up? Anyone after the last blood moon went away? The day after that, anyone just go, (laughs) whatever. God didn't take us out. You know, maybe in 18 to 20, we'll get out. (laughs) Gang. Verse 41, Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Are you guys out there at the bridge still talking about that rapture of the church thing? Are you still talking about this millennial kingdom, still going on about the second coming of Jesus? You better believe it, and we will until He comes. And we will not stop preaching Jesus until He comes. And we will not stop proclaiming, be ready, be ready, be ready. Because it's always the scoffers in their day who end up perishing. Now, this is the first fully recorded sermon of Paul. In this sermon, he quotes Psalm 89, verse 20. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Psalm 2, verse 7. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Psalm 16, verse 10. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Rick, if we had the Scripture verses up there, you wouldn't have to tell us that. Look them up. And initially, there's this phenomenal response in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them. The next Shabbat. And now then... The meeting of the synagogue had broken up many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes. A proselyte is a Gentile who, you know, became Jewish in religious faith. They followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. That's interesting. Continue in the grace of God. You've got to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace. Why are they saying that? I'll tell you in just a minute. But at first, this message, man, it resonated. The following week, the synagogue is completely packed out. Verse 44, the next Shabbat, nearly the whole city was assembled to hear the word of the Lord. I love it. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. When Luke uses that phrase, please understand, he has just elevated 
Jesus to the position of God. Because you cannot blaspheme a human. You blaspheme when you call God not God. You blaspheme when you say He is no Lord of mine. Jesus said, truly, I truly, I I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why did He say that? Mark tells us, because they were saying, He, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. Because they were saying, Jesus is not God. Jesus says, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is a blasphemy you cannot return from when you say, Jesus is no God of mine. And so Luke says very clearly here, they were contradicting the things spoken by Paul and they were blaspheming. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6. That Israel originally was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, but ceased to be a light to the Gentiles, going dark, focusing inward, shutting out, cutting off the Gentiles. And so now Paul and Barnabas said, that's our calling, man. And this is the turning point right here. You might even underline it in your Bibles. We are turning to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 26 is where it happened. That's where it begins. The turning point of the Gospel. The Gospel went out to the Jew first. And now also to the Greek. And Paul would write in Romans 15, verse 8, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the circumcised Jewish followers of the law, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises to the fathers. And, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Now watch this, the Gentile and the Jewish response, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many had been as has as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Wow! Gentiles are like, we're in? We're part of this thing? (laughs) Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! They're jumping, they're dancing, they're exulting. They're saying, this is a good word. They're so excited that finally, finally they get to be grafted into this holy thing. Not so with the Jewish people. The Jews, verse 50, incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city. Why the women first? Because they went to their husbands. You're not going to let this take place, are you? Well, I just don't think you're a very strong leader if you're going to let these people walk around the town and say the things that are saying. (laughs) And the leading men of the city said, Yes, dear. Yes, dear. (laughs) 
And they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Note that contrast. The sinners rejoice. The righteous recoil. The sinners are thrilled. Salvation is at hand. And those who should be more excited, who should be praising the Lord for His inclusion of these people, pull back and go, that is enough. Enough of that. Note again what Paul said in verse 47. He said, you repudiate this word of the Lord and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Listen closely. How does one judge themselves unworthy of eternal life? It's very simple. You reject the word of grace. Want to judge yourself unworthy? Live by the law. Live by works. Become the circumcision. And you make yourself, judge yourself unworthy for eternal life. As with everyone who will stand before God, Revelation 20, at the great throne judgment. And say, open up those books. I'll prove I was good enough. And so they open up the books of deeds. And find that they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The only thing that ever makes a man or a woman worthy of eternal life is the grace of God. The word of grace. Reject the offer of grace and you make yourself unworthy of eternal life. That's how it works. John chapter 1 verse 11 tells us he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him to the Jew first and now also to the Greek But the Jews here, they instigate instigate this this intense persecution against these apostles of the gospel. Missing out on their own salvation because of the bitterness of their own self-righteousness. Listen, if I can't rejoice in the salvation of another person, I need to repent. If I can't be excited because someone else is getting saved, whether they're getting saved here at the bridge... Or at Living Word, or at Life Church, or at Christ the King, or at First Baptist, or at the whatever. Name, 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 name. There's all kinds of names out there at churches. Doesn't matter. If I can't rejoice that they're getting saved and that the church is exploding with salvation, I got a problem, man. I got issues. And I need to repent. Did you notice what he said, by the way, in verse 48? <laughs> he said, last part of the verse. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And we're right back to that Calvinism. Okay, so only those who had been appointed, like like Saul, who was appointed from birth, right? And appointed for the gospel and appointed to go. Now it's only those who are appointed to eternal life. They're the only ones who believe. Well, I want to be appointed to eternal life. Okay, believe. And you will have been appointed to eternal life from birth. You see, because God knows. He knows the choices we're going to make. And based on those choices before we've even made them, He says, okay, Glenn's going to choose me, follow after me, believe in me. He's appointed. Done. Taken care of. But but in our little timeline, we go, but, but Glenn didn't make that choice yet. Well, he has, but let's go back a few years. When Glenn was a kid, 
He hadn't made the choice. Yeah, but he's appointed. Yeah, but he hadn't made the choice. Yeah, but God knows he's going to. So he appointed him. And that's how, that's how election works. We have been elected by God prior to making the choice because he knows we're going to make the choice. And we've been over this a few times. It actually makes an awful lot of sense. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. But what about my free will? Romans 8.29 Underline it. Memorize it. Learn it. Live it. Know it. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn, that is, in the position of firstborn Son, the begotten Son, right, that we just talked about. He'll be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. But it all began with God foreknowing the choice that we would make. And so He foreknew, He chose that we would choose Him. Does that make sense? Are you with me here? And again, if you're sitting there going, but I want to be, a, I want to be one of the chosen. I say, great, choose Him. Choose Him and you're chosen. That's how it works. And I want to remind you all that God chose you, appointed you from birth to go with the Gospel. If you've given your life to Jesus, that is your calling. Every last one of us, that is our calling. To go with the Gospel. What, what, to Cyprus? Well, maybe, if that's where He's called you. Remember, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul. He didn't say where. He just said, set them apart to go. And they went. And the Lord would say that to you, say that to me tonight. I have set you apart to go. Where, Lord? Maybe home tonight to talk about an unbelieving, to talk to an unbelieving family member. I've set you apart to go. Maybe to work tomorrow to talk to that one person you know is curious about the gospel. He has set you apart to go. Okay, quickly. I'm going to finish up here. But they shook the dust off their feet. Remember, they were just driven out of Pisidian Antioch. They shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Or Iconium. Now, the words in protest are added because the idea of shaking the dust off your feet is, you know, it's just to shake it off. Thank you, Taylor Swift. Shake it off. That's one of the recent Taylor Swift songs, right? I am on the cutting edge of culture if I'm quoting Taylor Swift in my teaching. Yeah. Shake it off. So that's all they're doing. They're they're just shaking it off. Now in Taylor Swift's version, and there's a reason I mentioned her. She's shaken off all the talk behind her back about how she treats guys in relationships. Well, if the shoe fits. And Peter, Peter said, if you suffer because you're stupid, there's nothing good in that. This is my paraphrase. But if you suffer for doing the will of God, well, that's a different thing. And Paul and Barnabas are suffering here for doing the will of God. They paid a price. They're booted out of the city. And as they left the city, 
they shook the dust off their feet. They're, they're not saying to the citizens of Pisidian Antioch, losers, shake it off. You know, that's not what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, what? This is not road rage as they're walking out of the city, you know. <laughs> they shook the dust off their feet. Because, and get this, beautiful feet are never dusty. Beautiful feet are never dusty. Romans 10.15, Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Beautiful feet are never dusty. That is, those who bring the good news, those who carry the gospel, don't bear the dust of the last rejection. They shake it off. And they bring the gospel with clean feet. Clean feet are the key. How are we going to make it until Jesus comes in this country? How are we going to make it in this culture? How are we going to hang in there? What is the key to Christian endurance? Clean feet. You're rejected? Shake the dust off your feet. Someone comes at you? Someone cuts you off? Shake the dust off your feet and continue on to the next town. You keep going with the gospel and he who endures to the end, Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And the disciples, verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because their feet were clean. Paul and Barnabas didn't walk down the road going, well, that was a bummer. I thought it'd go better than that. Dude, did you see what that one lady said? Oh, I saw her talking to her husband. He was just going, yes, dear. I don't know what that was about. No, their feet were clean. They didn't bear the rejection. They bore the gospel, the good news, and went forward with it. Now, really quickly, give me two minutes and we're done tonight. I promise. At Iconium. At Iconium, chapter 14, verse 1. They entered the synagogue of the Jews together. They spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. So now they moved on to the next city. From Pisidian Antioch, they go on down to Iconium. And they spoke in such a manner, again, a large number of people believed, of both Jews and of Greeks... Gospel's going out, gang, Jews and Greeks alike. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Note that, apostles plural, which means Barnabas was considered an apostle. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they became aware of it, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, and Lystra, and Derbe, and the whole surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now I had to take you into chapter 14 for this reason. Notice what it was that... That it said there in verse 3. What were they testifying to? What were they testifying to? Chapter 14, verse 3. The word of His grace. The word of His grace. Don't miss this. Here at Iconium, 
we see the same insistence that we saw previously. Remember what Paul did in Pisidian Antioch? He urged the people to continue in grace. Continue in grace, he said. You've got to continue in grace. It's all about grace, he said to Jewish and Gentile believers alike. And now here at Iconium, it's actually Iconium, I keep saying Iconium, but that's just me. Here at Iconium, he says again, the word of his grace. He preaches the word of grace. Why? Why the word of grace? I believe it's because the Spirit knew that these churches would have the most trouble with the concept. Well, what what makes you say that? Pisidian Antioch and Iconium sat at the very heart of a region called Galatia. Galatia? To whom Paul wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia. Galatians. And the entire theme of the letter of Galatians is grace. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now please get this. We distort the gospel when our focus shifts to anything other than Jesus. And it can be something as simple as verses on a screen. Why didn't you put the verses up on the screen tonight, Rick? Because we're getting accustomed to them and you're not going to see them for a while. What? But I have to write down my verses. If I don't write down my verses, I don't really have the experience that I came to get. How many of you go back and look up all those verses? I know one or two or three of you weirdos do, but I mean the rest of you. How many of you use the verses on the screen as a clock? He's halfway through the second column. We're going to be here a while tonight. Two verses to go. Two verses to go. Come on, Rick. Land the plane. This may not seem like a big deal. But the Lord has has shown me that it's the little things that remove grace from a church. It's the little things that remove the simplicity of the gospel from fellowships. It's issues like kitchens and signs and buildings. It's elevating all these other things and pretty soon, we don't mean to, we don't intend to, But pretty soon we have deserted the gospel of grace. Because we've got all these other things we've got to do. We've got to have concerts. We've got to bring in guests. I got a letter from from a dear missionary friend this last week saying, you know what I really think you ought to do at the bridge is dedicate one Sunday a month to missions work and have different speakers come in. And I'm like, no. We're not going to do that. Not that mission work is not important. We're going to be in the Word of God every Sunday. We're going to worship Jesus. And if it kills me, and it may, we 
are going to remain simple in this fellowship. And we go round and round this in our staff meetings. You really we ought to tape them. Well, sometimes Eva does, but don't you think, Leslie? Just tape one and say, "Listen to this," because we spin our wheels for about an hour, and then we all realize, you know, this is just tomfoolery, and he's not even on staff. <laughs> Again, it might not seem like a big deal. These little things and 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 riding herd on this stuff, but my friends. By the time Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, which is less than less than ten years later, he has to urge them all over to come back to the grace of God. And my prayer is that we at the Bridge Fellowship will ever be focused on Jesus and teaching the word of His grace. And let all the other people who want to do that stuff do that stuff. All the other things. All the programs and all that, that's fine. But if you want the word of His grace, let's stick to it. Father, we thank You for Your word tonight. We know we've been here a while, but Lord, Your word is so good. And Your grace is so good to us. And we so desperately need to be a people who just, again, soak in Your word. And I pray, Father, for now the, the washing to be finished in us. And as we go out of here tonight and we go to our homes, Holy Spirit, strengthen the weak and empower us with Your Word and Your will and Your ways. And Father, we praise Your name as we will ever praise Your name for the Word of Your grace. Thank You for the grace that saves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.